So over the last month or so, we've all seen the leaves on the trees change colors. Now I went for months and months without seeing any green. It was all gray and brown and gross all the time. But you saw green, and you saw the green turn to brilliant shades of yellow and orange and red and then brown and then the leaves fall to the ground and then you recognize you needed to do something with those leaves. It's all part of this process. In a few months, the process will all begin again and the, the buds will come out on the trees and then shortly thereafter you'll see sprouts of green. And there will be it autumn again, right? And then it'll be back to these changing colors. It's over and over and round and round. We, we see these things year in and year out. There's a transformation that's taking place. Things that are outside of our control, things we don't make happen. You can't go over to a branch in the middle of winter and say, be green. Or to a branch in the middle of summer and say, show me some yellow or red. It doesn't have the capacity to do such a thing. The branches don't control the fruitfulness on themselves. So long as they are attached healthfully to a healthy trunk with a healthy root system and proper conditions like having water and sun and these kinds of things, if all these conditions are met, the the branches are going to produce fruit, whatever kind of fruit it is, whether that's a leaf or if it's an apple or an orange, whatever kind of tree, it will produce fruit if it's healthfully attached. If you and I think that we can control the fruit that comes out of ourselves in some fashion or form, we are looking at the transformation that God offers in a very human way. I think it's very important for us to understand that we do not control the product, but He does. What we need is to be healthfully attached to the the vine. We're just the branches. At the end of Colossians chapter 2, Paul tells us that man-made rules and regulations, while they seem to produce something, while they have a an appearance of producing something, they cannot produce the transformation that we desire. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They, they can't help with that. Rules and regulations do not satiate our desires. In fact, oftentimes I'd say rules and regulations stimulate the desires of our flesh. Sometimes what comes out looks different than what came out previously, but that, but that still does not necessarily mean fruit. Rules and regulations do not produce fruit. If we think that they will, we'll find ourselves either deceived or discouraged. The desires and attitudes of our hearts uh, will be fruitfully brought forth as we are rightly seeing where our life comes from. In chapter 3, Paul starts to tell us where our life is. The location is in heaven, but the person is Jesus. 
our real life is in heaven, our real life is hidden in Christ with God. That's where our real life is. He tells us that we have already died. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In addition to telling us that we have died, he's going to tell us to put to death our bodies, our mortal flesh. But the question, vitally important, is how in the world do you put your flesh to death? How do you satiate the desires of your flesh? How do you come to the place where the, those things that once held sway over you are no longer what hold sway over you? The reality is, for these to be put to death, it means we need life from somewhere else, somewhere different, and that life has already been provided to us in Christ. So that's where we were last week. We have received this life from Jesus, and it introduces us to this section. It's really important. We're going to see more of this provision of God through the life that we have in Christ. So last week we began chapter 3. We observed that this death defeating life comes from Jesus. He has already accomplished this. It's already done. You can see it in verses 1-4. through It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Our real life is found in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our old life is declared dead. Sounds sweet, doesn't it? Good deal. And yet, you and I both know that you still feel the tug of the dead man. Right? When someone is in the way of what you want. Maybe you want something that's not healthy for you, but someone's preventing you. You feel the tug of the old man. Sometimes you want something that's good. And the illustration I use for myself is I love peace. I love calm. I like people to get along. Can't we all just get along? I just love it. I can actually make that wonderful thing into an idol. Where if someone is disrupting what I think is the right way toward peace, they become an object of my scorn and my disdain and my anger because you're disrupting the peace. Something good, peace, becomes an idol, and therefore the responsiveness is eliciting from me desires of my flesh, not desires for God's kingdom, which is good and healthy and real peace. Can you see what I'm saying here? You and I all taste the pangs of that old dead man, even if our pursuits are for something that is an admirable pursuit. So, Paul tells us to seek, in verse 1, seek the things that are above. In verse 2, to set our minds on things that are above, because that's where life really is. Our life really is there 
because our Savior is there. He is our life. As we transition into verses 12 through 17 this morning, we want to see this. Our Savior provides, our Savior provides real life, the life that He is. And in providing that real life, He defeats the death that we crave. You don't think you crave death, but where you fight, you're seeing death. Where you follow the lusts of your heart, you're craving after death. Our Savior, who is life and provides life, defeats those cravings of death within us. Take a look at verses 12 through 17. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, so that, uh, excuse me, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. As we look this morning at these verses and Literally, you could spend weeks studying these short verses. This morning, we're going to cover as much as we can in the short amount of time we have. We want to see the provision of God through the life that we receive in Jesus. So the first concept that we want to notice from verse 12 is this. Jesus' life provides an intimate relationship. Jesus' life the life that He gives, provides us with an intimate relationship. And you can see this by how God talks to the people of Colossae. And this is how He would talk to me and you. The people in the first century in Colossae, these believers, are no different than you. And they're no different than me. We're the same. The reason He calls them what He calls them is because they're believers in Jesus Christ. And so, that which he calls the Colossians here is exactly what he would call us as believers. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. He calls us chosen ones. And he calls us holy. And he calls us beloved. Loved by God. So we want to think about that for a few moments the way God looks at those Colossian believers in the first century is the way He looks at a believer here in the 21st century. He calls you His chosen one. He calls you His holy one. And He calls you His loved one. You. Yes, I'm talking to you, believer in Jesus Christ. His love has been set on you. He looks at you and says, 
I've selected, I've chosen you for myself. You're, you're mine in a loving way. And He calls you holy. Set aside. Different. Unique. Yeah, you're unique, all right. So am I. We're in this together. I want for us to look at a few passages of Scripture to drive home this life that we've received that makes us engaged with the God of the universe in such an intimate relationship. Take a look starting at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here, speaking about the people of Israel. The people of Israel have a unique relationship with God. They have in the past. And according to the book of Romans, that relationship does not end. God still has a relationship with believers among the Israeli populace. There are believers there and all around the world that are of Jewish descent. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, look and listen to these carefully chosen words. Not carefully chosen by me. Not even carefully chosen by Moses, the penman. But words carefully chosen by God Himself who inspired each text of Scripture. Verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people... What does the next word say? Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has... Next word please. Chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His... Next word with me. Love on you. And next word. Chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The point here is not to get into what's going on in the Middle East currently or even history. It's just to see God in talking about the people of Israel, had this special relationship with them in which He chose them, made them holy, and declares them to be loved by Him. And this is exactly how He's talking to the first century New Testament church. You are chosen by God. You are holy because of God. And you are loved by God. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 where he says, "...but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light." The reason that we are a chosen people and a holy people and a loved people is because Jesus is a chosen servant and a holy servant and a loved son of God. Listen to these uh, verses just in reference. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, Jesus is referred, referred to as a chosen cornerstone. A chosen cornerstone. Jesus is chosen. We are chosen. In Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is referred to as holy, innocent, and unstained. Jesus is holy. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is holy. We are holy. Well, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, you'll remember this statement as Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And they heard a voice from heaven say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Jesus is loved. We are loved. Jesus is chosen, holy, and loved. We are chosen and holy and loved. There is this, that's not a coincidence, friends. The reason we are chosen and holy and loved is because we are united together with Jesus. You want to be chosen and holy and loved by God? You need to be involved in an intimate union with Jesus. And that's what Jesus' life provides for you. A union with Jesus forever. And when you are united together with Jesus, you can know how God feels about you. Not sitting around, sweating it out, wondering, what's He going to say on the last day? Am I going to be ashamed? Am I going to be condemned? Am I going to be cast aside? Is He going to say, depart from Me, I never knew you? You don't have to worry about any of that when you're united together with God through Jesus. Jesus declares you to be everything you need to be. This is the greatest news on earth. And it's offered freely to us at great cost to Him. So when you think about Jesus, He didn't just die for you and me. He lived for us. He lived for us. He obeyed everything that you need to obey in your place. His righteousness, that record of righteousness, is all accrued and then it's distributed. His righteousness has been, is a great word, imputed to us, placed on our account. We are chosen, holy, and beloved due to our union with Jesus. Listen to these words from a song that we sing occasionally. It's called His Robes for Mine. I'll just refer to the last two uh, lines from one of the stanzas. It says, He as though I accursed and left alone, I as though He embraced and welcomed home. You see the the distinction there? Jesus condemned for us. Us welcomed because of Him. It's the great exchange. My sin placed on His account. He became sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God through Him. His righteousness on our account. So we have a special relationship with the Father because of the life we've received from Jesus. Head back to the book of Colossians. This intimate relationship with the Father is completely due to what Jesus has provided for us. When He raised us with Him, He made us complete. He made us complete. 
That means you've been made enough. Do you know that you've been made enough? Is Jesus truly the sufficient Savior? Was his death sufficient to forgive our sin? The question is, was his life sufficient to provide us with a record of righteousness? When you've been made complete in him, that means you've been made enough. God views you as enough. Don't I have to don't I have to hit these standards, these marks? Don't I have to come along? Don't I have to do this or that? Jesus has made you enough. So while that's not the end of the story, we're talking about being attached to this vine. We're branches on this vine. And there's fruit that comes, but it's fruit produced by God through Christ in us. So as Christ, our Savior, is pleasing to His Father, He has made us pleasing to our Father. This is such good news. We're back in Colossians chapter 3. And the second concept we want to notice from verses 12 and 13 is that Jesus' life provides fruitful reflections of our Father. Jesus' life provides fruitful reflections of our Father. Look again at verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, this great statement where Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, Therefore, be imitators of God as loved, beloved children. Let the life of God be seen in you. As God demonstrates His fruitfulness, may that fruitfulness be seen in you. That's how he says it in Ephesians 5. This is a very similar in our text in many ways, but I think it's very important to understand this. Paul does not say to you, and he does not say to me, are, are you still listening? My, my voice has not blended in. He does not say to you and me, produce tender mercies. He does not say, produce kindness or humility or meekness or long-suffering. He doesn't even say, learn how to. Learn how to be compassionate. Learn how to have tender mercies. Learn how to be kind. Learn how to be meek. Learn how to be long-suffering. He does not say that. Instead, He tells us something different. And it's very important. He tells us, put on these things. Put them on. They're not yours. This fruit does not flow of your resource, of my resource. It's not by studying love that I become loving. It doesn't mean that it's hurtful to studying what, you know, what the Bible says about love. Of course, it's what we do. 
We come in here and we look at what the Bible says. We see the demonstration of love in the person of Jesus. It helps us to see the difference between the fake love that's made up in the world and the real love that is exhibited by God. So yes, we learn things, but the learning does not produce the doing. The learning helps us to recognize when I am controlling myself and I'm providing a faux love and when God is producing a genuine love. You can see the difference. So he's not telling us to learn love. He's not telling us to manufacture love. He's telling us to put these things on. The difference is one is man-made and the other is God-provided. As we started, we were talking about trees and leaves and all of these things. Kind of driving at John chapter 15. Take a look at the screens, please. John 15, verses 4 and 5, where Jesus said, Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me you can do nothing. He's talking to us about abiding in Christ, which is another way, it's a, it's a different way of saying walking by faith or walking in the Spirit. Or I really like the connection between walking in the Spirit and the fear of God in the Old Testament. If you look at and analyze the fruitfulness of walking in the Spirit in the New Testament and you read through all the passages in the Old Testament on the fear of God or the fear of the Lord, you're going to see that the product is the same. The concept of abiding in Christ or walking with Christ or walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit or, or having the fear of the Lord is a recognition of God as who He is and us in our right place under Him. Hey Lord, I need You. Lord, I need You. I need, I need from You what You're calling for. All through the Scriptures, you see characters of Scripture striving in one way or another, but time after time, you're going to see humanity coming forth. Failure and sin. Well, take a step back and there's, just look at yourself. If you took just one week and really thought about it, you, in all of your efforts, you're going to have some decent moments and you're going to have other moments, right? Moments where you, where you sinned. Moments where you chose your own way, your own resources. The results weren't good. Frustration between you and a spouse. Frustration between you and a, and a co-worker. Frustration with you and someone on the road. A neighbor. Ways in which you felt betrayed by someone. Ways in which you betrayed someone. Just look at one week of your time and you think, whoa, this isn't, this isn't going great. Frustration. When you see sinfulness being produced in your life, that's you driving the train. 
That's what we produce. That's what we bring to the table. If you see fruitfulness coming to the table, genuine love, genuine joy, genuine peace, this is when the Spirit of God is is working in and through you. You you can look and you can can sense your, your own frailties. God's grace produces Christian virtue. God's grace produces Christian virtue. What what does it look like? He he gives us very specific ways, specific things that it looks like. He starts off with, in verse 12, compassionate hearts. And also translated as tender mercies. We don't have to look very far to figure out what that looks like. Just read the Gospels and read about Jesus. Read about our Savior. What He's like. In Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a great cloud, crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Compassion. This great crowd healed their sick. Why did he have compassion? He knew they were like sheep without a shepherd. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 41, it says, Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Let me give you a little bit of context. A person with leprosy came to Jesus and he said, if you will, you can make me clean. You know what's so interesting? Jesus, in his compassion, his pity, could have just said, be clean. And that would have been fine. He had every ability to do that but instead he reached out and touched him nobody else is touching the leper no one else is going to going to touch the guy with leprosy they send them outside the camp you go in your own little commune so you can have your body parts fall off alone we don't want to join you in that jesus in pity stretches out his hand and says, I will be clean. Compassion. Pity. In Mark chapter 6, the, Jesus told his disciples, hey, it's been, you, you've, been, you've been busy. We've been on these missions. We've been doing all these things. It's time to go aside by ourselves and have some, some rest time. So they go across the, the Sea of Galilee. They're on the other side and they're, they're resting. <laughs> And then there's this crowd. Verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 34, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now this is when Jesus fed the 5,000. So they went to rest, right? The people found him. And instead of saying, hey, it's our vacation time. We need a little time off. We've been, working. We've been going at it. Go away, come back another day. Jesus had compassion on them and He teaches them. And He teaches them for such a long time. He's like, well, these people can't go back now. They've got to be fed. So before He sends them away, He makes sure that they have something to eat so they don't faint on the journey back. You just watch Jesus around the Gospels. You see what tender mercies looks like. You'll see what compassionate hearts looks like. That comes by God's good hand 
not only through Jesus, but by His Spirit who dwells within us. The life that we have received from God produces compassionate hearts. So where you see your heart shrinking toward people, looking down on people, judging and criticizing people, turning away from them, that is a reflection of what? Self, right? That's my resource. God, help me. Help me not to be focused so much on me and my desires that I ignore all the needs of the people around me. Where you see compassion toward those in need, say, oh, God, thank you for your fruitful work in my life. Lord, I need, I need that compassion. This person needs your compassion. Let me be a channel of your compassion toward them. How about kindness is the next word he uses. Gentleness or moral goodness. Where are we going to find that illustrated? Well, I have three passages of Scripture for you to consider. They'll be on the screen to my left and right. First of all, from Psalm 34 and verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. The way that Peter says it in 1 Peter is, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. I want to ask you that question before we move on to the next verses. Have you tasted the goodness of the Lord? His kindness toward you? His faithfulness toward you? His favor toward you that you did not deserve and do not deserve? Have you tasted that? Where He looks upon you in love, looks upon you with mercy, patiently enduring you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, to turn from you and your unforgiving, unrelenting, unkind ways and turn to a God who is kind? How kind is He? Who is he kind toward? He's kind to all the the religious people, right? Well, listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Want a taste that the Lord is good? Just meditate on that verse for a little bit. He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. It's difficult to be kind to people that are ungrateful. You work hard providing and caring, busting your back to try to provide something for someone, and they're just kind of, it's like, yeah, whatever. Easy. Easy day, yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I had that before. I've had one of those before. Very very loose, very casual with the, the good things that you break your back to provide for someone. Ungrateful. It's difficult to meet ungra- ingratitude with kindness. 
How about to someone that's just not, not just in, ungrateful, but evil toward you? It's impossible, friends. We don't do that. But God has done it. He's done it again and again and again and again. Right from the beginning. Right from the garden when He provided everything that Adam and Eve could possibly need. Tells them, live it up, enjoy it, eat it. It's all there for you at your disposal. Care for it. Take care of it. Don't eat from this tree. In the day you eat from this tree, you'll die. And like, after hearing Satan's sales pitch, pooh, I see what's going on here, God. You're not quite as generous as you're making yourself out to be. You're holding out from us the very best. And we will not have it. We will not have the very best held out on us. So we'll take it for ourselves. And God, in their rebellion, provides for them covers them with animal skins and provides them with a promise that the head of this serpent that deceived you, that you're blaming for your ingratitude and your disbelief in Me, I'll crush the head of that serpent with the heel of the seed of the woman that I'm going to provide. Providing in the midst of ingratitude and evil. He's been doing it from the beginning. And He does it to this day. That kindness, that kindness is the kindness that God calls for from us. Let me ask you, of your own resources, do you have it? You're going to be able to do that? No, you don't have it. However, you have received life and your life is hidden with Christ in God. First, He has already done it for you. He's already been kind in your stead. That's that's the record. That's great. And He provides this life that impacts our daily lives in such a way that by His grace, there can be demonstrations of that kindness here and now in the 21st century in living color, in flesh and bone. Isn't that amazing? This is what He provides for us. He tells us, put on tender mercies, compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Where's that kindness coming from? Not from us. It comes from Him. We need it from Him. And He provides it abundantly. Did you realize that this word kindness is one of the fruitful expressions of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. There's our word. Kindness. The fruit of whom? The Spirit. Who's producing that fruit? The Spirit is. God produces this in us and through us by His grace. We need Him to do this. Well, the next virtue is humility. Humility. A deep sense of one's littleness. That's a great definition, I think. A deep sense of one's littleness. Put on humility. And again, we need to look no further than our Savior for this. 
want you to think. For eternity, He's the second person of the triune Godhead. He's eternally God. At the beginning, He spoke the world into existence. Right now, where you're seated and I'm standing, He is holding the universe together, including the very atoms that I am made up of. He sustains the world by the word of His power. Is there a more majestic person than our Savior who spoke the world into existence and sustains it this very second? There is not. And yet, He's majestically humble. Listen to these words from Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and... What are the next three words? Lowly in heart. That's how Jesus describes Himself. Gentle and lowly in heart. Deep, a deep sense of one's littleness. Well, He, he did this being made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. right? That He might taste death for everyone. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So our Savior is this humble one. And in our union with Him, we are accredited with His humility. And in our reception of His grace, that humility can be put on display. Again, this, we're going to battle this on a daily basis, right? It's just have someone contrast you. Have, have someone fight against you. Have someone belittle you and see how, how easily you are humble. We rub up against our own way on a regular basis with this humility concept. So we say, Lord, I, I don't have it. I need it. I need it from you. Could, could you please grace me with your humility? This is putting on humility. Then meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. I like this definition of meekness. It's a willingness to be injured rather than to cause injury. A willingness to be injured rather than to cause injury. Again, I don't think we have to go any further than our Savior to figure out uh, this kind of meekness. He, this one that spoke the world into existence and, and sustains life subjected Himself to, to being put on trial by men. Being mocked by men. To be beaten by men. Crucified by men. Killed by men. You know that that meekness is a fruit of the Spirit? It's not something that we conjure up on our own. Like my expectation isn't, okay, I'm going to teach you and me about meekness and now we're going to go and be meek. My expectation is we're going to think about meekness 
We're going to see our lack of it, and we're going to see our need for it, and recognize that God provides it in abundance. He's willing to provide exactly what He calls for. Meekness. How about patience? Everyone, everyone loves a good conversation about patience. In fact, you're probably needing to be patient because it's 11.07. I better not make you be you know, practicing this right in the middle of the sermon, right? Slowness, slowness to avenging wrongs. Again, this is a fruit of the Spirit. We could go on here, but I want to make sure we get to the, to the last piece. As we transition from God's life, providing an intimate relationship, and then providing fruitful reflections of our Savior, we want to move to verses 14-17, through 17, where Jesus' life provides impactful, life-changing grace. Impactful, life-changing grace. What we're going to notice here in verse 14, we have a chance to, to, to talk about verse 13 and, the, and that call for bearing with one another and forgiving as we've been forgiven. Sounds like a great podcast uh, coming near you. But uh, verse, verse 14 says, And above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here's a call, again, to put something on. But God provides what He calls for. And here we notice that God provides love that binds. God provides love that binds. He says, above all these things, put on love. Take what I'm giving you. Put it on, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We recognize this, that God tells us in Romans chapter 5 that He has shed His love abroad in our hearts through His Spirit that He's given to us. And what happens with that love is it brings a unity. It brings a binding. And I think you can sense that. I think we have not, not, um, a not too distant uh, reminder of this. As I was 6,500 miles away for the last five months, I felt connected to you during the, those months I think, by, based upon your words and letters and emails and texts and all the other things, I think you felt connected to me. The reason for that is God has taken our hearts and knit them together in love. It's a beautiful thing. There's a lot of conflict in this world. There's a lot of hatred in this world. There's a lot of opposite of love in this world. And here He provides for us something that unifies us and brings us together. God provides a love that binds. Uh, next, He provides a peace that governs. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. He says, let the peace of Christ rule. The concept is that of being a governor or a ruler or an umpire in your soul. What's, what's interesting is you know, we're constantly dealing with, with difficulties and, and things that are, that are turned upside down. And God doesn't say, be a peaceful person. He says, let the peace of Christ govern you. Let the peace of Christ rule you. And he, and he does this in numerous ways. In, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, when he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep or guard your hearts 
through Christ Jesus. Jesus, God, is providing His peace. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 14 and verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus offers you, God offers you and me, His peace. Not figure out, find out your own peace, find out how to be a peaceful person. He says, here, let me give you a peace that will govern and rule over you in a way that produces healthy unity. Called into one body and we rejoice with thanksgiving. So not only does God provide with us love that binds and peace that governs, He also provides us with word, a Word that ministers. Verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly or abundantly. What's the result of allowing that Word to dwell, take up residence richly within us? The result is that we, we are flowing out with that, that Word. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So there's, there's the, this work and Word of Christ dwelling in us richly and it, and it comes out. That's what God's grace does. It comes to us. And then it flows through us. We want to be that channel. Finally, in verse 17, God provides a name that motivates. A name that motivates. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. There's an old expression. I don't hear it much anymore. But we... We play for the name on the front of the jersey, not the name on the back of the jersey. Now, some of you guys are not sports fans. You don't know what that means. So, let me explain it to you. On most athletic gear, the name of the team is on the front and the name of the individual is on the back. We play for the name on the front of the jersey, the team, not the name on the back of the jersey, the individual. And what we have here in verse 17 is a name under which we play. A name under which we live. Because it's in Him that we live and move and have our being. We have a banner under which we operate. His banner over me is love. So as we live our lives this week, as we live our lives in the coming days, what God has provided for us in this life of Jesus is something completely different than figuring out ways to change my behaviors and, and stop doing this and start doing this. It's, it's, it's way more other than that. God Himself can enable us to put to death the deeds of the body put off. And God Himself can provide us with the real fruitfulness that are, that's called for from this text. So he's, he's really talking about life-transforming realities. But it comes from God. We under, operate under His banner. We need real, genuine transformation. It does not come through human measures, 
through human regulations, but it's provided to us from our Savior. Notice the refrain in verses 15, 16, and 17. Each one of these ends with an expression of thanksgiving. Each one of these is an expression of thanksgiving. I'm gonna, I'll leave it for our, our Bible study discussion groups tonight for you to think through why is it that he reflects on each one of these with thanksgiving. See, in the beginning, God created the world with His powerful Word, and each day He sustains it with His powerful Word. And our lives, they're transformed. Transformed by His powerful Word. We're not looking to ourselves for this transformation. We're looking to Him for that transformation. His life provides an intimate relationship. It provides fruitful expressions that are related to our Father. And it provides grace that changes. It's a life-changing, impactful grace. This is what He provides for us. And so what do we do? We say, Lord, I've received. I've received. My neighbors need to receive my family needs to receive what you've poured out in me. May, may I be a channel of your mercy and a channel of your grace. He, he is up to that task. The question is, will we, will we let him? Will we rest in him to allow him to produce this kind of fruitfulness within us? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in, in need. The the order before us is a tall order. We, we are at regular enmity with compassion and kindness and meekness and humility. Our regular order is, is to have things done our way for people to do things in a way that is fitting in our eyes. We pray that You'd help us by Your grace to be channels of mercy and channels of kindness, channels of love, channels of forgiveness. We pray, Father, that You'd produce within us the life and light of Jesus Christ that not only would we impact others with Your mercy and grace, but that the world around us would see the life and light of Jesus in us. We commit this to you with confidence in your ability to transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.